0: to jump back into Romans. And so uh, this week the sermon is, So You Think You're a Christian. So You Think You're a Christian. And I know some of y'all are probably familiar with that TV show. You probably remember it. It was a talent show. And it was actually called So You Think You Can Dance. And at the core of it, it was people who all thought that they were good dancers, right? And as you know, some of them were. Some of them were really good dancers and The reality is also that some of them just weren't. They weren't good at at all. And the whole premise of the show was, okay, everyone can think that they were a good dancer, but there are judges who understand dance and who are going to judge whether or not you are actually as good as you think you are. And so they had a criteria. Did they stay on beat? Did their movements have meaning? And did they have good body control? They weren't judging arbitrarily, but they had a criteria that they expected these people to meet. And so it didn't matter if personally thought, "Well, I'm a really good dancer. I'm doing a good job." If the judges said otherwise, and the point was, you may not be as good at this as you think you are. And so for us as Christians, the Bible is y'all the gauge on where we are in our walk with Christ. And so today in the sermon, in this letter that Paul sends to Rome, what he is doing is basically giving them a spiritual checklist to see where they are and where they stand. And I think that's also what we kind of need to use this passage for today. All of us think, oh, I'm doing a great job at my, in my faith and in my walk. I'm doing fine. I'm pretty content. I'm doing a good job. But when we look at our lives against what the word of God says regarding our lives, is that accurate? When we look at that spiritual checklist, where do we actually stand? Now, the purpose of today's sermon is not to invalidate anybody who actually is a Christian into thinking I'm not a Christian. But what it is, is to give us a checkup in order to make sure that we are like we talked about last week. We are where we actually think that we are. And so go with me, if, we, if you will, we're going to be in Romans 12 and we're going to be in verse 9, Romans 12 We're going to be in the ninth verse. And Paul starts off pretty interesting here. He says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Lord, as we prepare to jump into the Word, um, God, this is sort of a spiritual checklist. We all feel like we're doing a pretty decent job at this Christianity thing, but maybe we need a tune up, God. Maybe our spark plugs aren't where they need to be, and maybe we need a little bit of an oil change. So, God, as we go through the Word today, help us evaluate our own lives. Let us look at what Paul has said here, and let us check ourselves and see, against the Word of God, do I stand? where I think I stand Lord help us see in Jesus name we pray amen what a beautiful by the way and poignant way that Paul opens up this passage here we're about to talk about a spiritual checklist and the very first thing he says is oh but by the way before we get started let love be genuine now why does he say that why does he say let love be genuine if you're like me, you are probably under the impression that if it's love, that all love has to therefore be genuine or at least real love is. And I actually think that that's Paul's point here. As a church, we don't have the luxury of going through the motions just because you can. You know how many couples do things and they can all do those things for each other in the name of love, but not actually love each other at all. They just go through the motions. So much so that you can almost start doing things unconsciously. Love, though, contrary to what people say, is not just an action. As people say that all the time. Love is an action. If you remember one sermon I corrected it. Some people say love is what love does, but I fixed it. I said love does what love already is. And so in the same case, love is not just an action, y'all, but it does produce action. But actions should be the result of a deep level of affection and devotion to one another. As Christians, this love isn't just to one another, but in the things that we do in and for the church. You can do good and even help for things in the church and not do them out of a genuine place of love. And y'all, that breeds in the life of the believer contentment and resentment. Would you want, he said, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or out of vain conceit. When love is not genuine, everything you do is for me. (laughs) I do it for me. But when love is real and when love is genuine, you don't always think about you, but you think about other people. You think about how can I love others by serving them? But when your love isn't genuine, even when you do good things, your primary thought is, how by doing good to them am I doing good for myself? How am I serving myself? When you love out of obligation, which many people do, They love because they feel obligated to love their spouse or love their children or love what they do or love their church. The the truth is that you can never truly be as appreciated as you think you should be. And the theme here that Paul has for us is that as Christians, we are not living insular, insulated lives, but rather we are living outward. We live outwardly. What do I mean by that? Paul's echoing all the words of Jesus. And that is what often happened is that the believers, when they became less effective, lived for themselves. What are some examples of that? Well, here you go. I go to church, but I go to church for me. I serve when I am comfortable with serving. I only have community with the people I like. I'm not changing for anybody. But that's actually the way that non-Christians think. What we should be doing as believers is going above and beyond in order to serve one another and not in being served by one another. If even Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, who do you think you are? That deeper level of love and brotherly affection when he says that we should love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, y'all, that is not this timid, nice, cordial, superficial love. I think he literally means how you love a brother or a sister. I got a whole bunch of brothers and sisters in this church today. And as y'all know, with your siblings, you laugh with them, you cry, you're happy with them, you're angry with them, you fight with them, but more than anything, you fight for them. You can say stuff about your sibling, but let somebody else dare say it. Then we're having a fight. How is that love built? That love is built through years of equity, tests and trials, being happy, being angry, going through things together, being in deep fellowship with one another. You have equity with your brothers and sisters that you don't have with other people. So the challenge that Paul is laying on us is not let's go be nice to each other. Let's be superficial. He said, no, let's dig deeply into one another. Let's agree. Let's disagree. Let's mourn. Let's celebrate. Let's fight. Let's build some equity with one another because the bounding of the church happens when the brothers and the sisters are held together. And you love them with an unbreakable love. One that has been proven, that has been tested, that has that equity. And so my question for you is, Do you feel like you have that with other members of our body of Christ? One of the dangers of social media and the modern Christian is that you can think that you're close or connected or invested with someone because you see just glimpses of their lives. But that's not real life. Paul challenges that we are not superficial, but real, real and bound together by the blood of Jesus. And next he says this, he says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit and do so by serving the Lord. In other words, don't be a bum. Don't be a bum, Christian. I said that recently at the school and the kids say, why do you say that like that? When I was in high school, we had a whole bunch of people from New Orleans who moved in and they were like, you're a bum. So I like to say it like that. So this is my advice to you as a Christian, don't be a bum, don't be a bum as a Christian. I remember being a kid and I hated working in groups because it meant that my grade hinged on other people doing their part and equally participating, And it never failed. There was always someone who would off of the people really doing the work. But when it came time for the grade, we all got the same grade. And I couldn't stand that. And I guess I think what bothered me the most is like if they had just done nothing, then we would have called them out. Was like they didn't do anything. They don't deserve a grade. But the problem wasn't that they didn't do anything, but they did just enough so that we couldn't say that they were inactive. Y'all, I'm afraid that many of us as Christians, we are doing just enough enough to skate by and say, well, I'm active. It's not that I'm doing nothing, but are you doing what God actually requires of you? You may be given effort, but is it all? Are you zealous in the things? Are you fervent in the work that you do for the Lord? Or are you just skating by? Making the minimum payments on that credit card. Thinking that doing just enough will build equity with one another. That's what it means to be slothful, right? It's not that you're moving slowly like a sloth. It is that you aren't putting in and contributing the way that you should be. And that is what creates the problem. When he says don't be slothful in zeal, think of that as zeal, as passion excitement, motivation. How often do we serve the Lord, but do so when we can get to it? Or just lack the motivation it takes to actually commit ourselves. And no, I'm not saying did you get to church on time, but it's like this. When I wake up at 3.30 in the morning to go to the gym, yeah, I might not feel like getting out of bed. I may drag myself out of the bed, But the reason I drag myself out is because I'm highly motivated. I'm zealous for the result of me spending time in the gym. Aesthetically, it's helpful for me. But what disturbs me about myself is that sometimes that same person who will drag himself out of bed to go move a lot of weight, by the way, to go move some weight in order to look good, that same person is not nearly as zealous or committed when it's time to pray. That same person is not as zealous and committed when it's time to hear the Word of God or read the Word of God. And so in the morning when I should be pursuing the Lord, I come face face to face with my competing commitments in life, and I have to guard myself against letting my relationship with the Lord and His people be stale. Run of the meal, and so He instructs us that we need to be diligent in the spirit and serve the Lord. Hebrews ten and twenty three says, "Let us hold fast the confession of our hope." without wavering, for he who promises faithful. Mother Doremus, Christine and Felicia. Being diligent in the faith means that we should be in practice of the faith. Now, why is this so important? Because we are the sum of what we repeatedly do, not what we inconsistently do. The only ones of us who've ever benefited from hard work was because you repeatedly and consistently did the same thing. But you will notice that the things that you wanted to see progress in that you did inconsistently, you didn't see progress or growth the way that you wanted to see it. And it's not that we want to be good Christians so we make a practice of being good Christians, but it's that we love it. Therefore, because we love it, we make a practice of it. We're so, by the way, if we can be honest, I like to be honest, especially up here, we're so accustomed to practicing things that we don't enjoy, that we think being diligent in the faith will actually be a chore. So maybe this will help. When I played football, I'll just be honest with you. I won't lie and say I loved practice or I loved learning the fundamentals. No one plays football to practice, okay? They play it to play. Practice is not fun. The games are fun. You don't play football to go to practice. You play so that you can play. And I didn't love the practice of playing football, but you know what I love? I loved football. Point blank, I loved it. And I knew practicing it would make me better, therefore, it would make it more enjoyable. So I practiced, but then I didn't just practice any kind of way, but I practiced in a way that says, you know, I love this. I enjoy this. And when thinking about this, we will not be able to do anything that we want to do for the Lord if we don't first love him. I can't imagine what a chore it is to come to church, to have fellowship, to read the word, to grow in Christ if you don't love him. And y'all, do you know how much we commit ourselves to things that we don't love? We'll go to work and hate it despise it, but we'll go consistently. And then we'll get there and work hard. If you can do that with the stuff you don't love, what should you do with the stuff you do love? And listen, it has to come from a genuine place. There was no point for me in playing in a football game, wearing out my body, practicing, if I didn't love it. And crazy as it sounds, but it is true, many people will go to church. Many people will go to Bible study. They will study the word themselves. They will sing. They will play. They will preach. They will do all of the things that they're supposed to do, not because they love it, but because they feel obligated to do it. Because there is an expectation that they're going to do it. Maybe that there's a check that comes along with it, but be totally removed from it in their heart. And what I tell you is, if we're going to do anything for the Lord and it not be from a genuine real place, then we might as well not do it at all. Because it means nothing to him. Last week, we saw that whatever we offer to God must not just be presented, but it must be properly conditioned to be received by God. And passion, by the way, passion can't be manufactured. Kids sometimes will say to me at the school, you know, they love that one class that I, that I teach, 12th grade Bible. And they will say, I love your class, your class, my favorite class. And they come in there and go to sleep. They drift off. They don't pay attention. I'm like, no, you don't love it. Because if you love it, you would be motivated. At least enough to keep you engaged. I think that's the same with our walk with Christ. Serving the Lord with fervency should be natural to the believing Christian. You not only engage in worship and the word, but with people around you. And it isn't like pulling teeth or you're not knee deep in your phone just to make the experience a little bit more palatable. And he goes on to say this, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. In other words, what he is saying here is that real Christians are not passive, but active in meeting the needs of other believers. Especially when we have the means to do it. Y'all, what he's saying here is that real Christians don't wait for others to respond so that they can do as little as possible, but we should lead in sharing resources so that there's no need and dependence on manipulative programs for our people. So, failing as a Christian he says, is failing to give love and support. Can I suggest something controversial? Because this actually came up one time at a church I was serving at in Sunday school. If, this is just a random number, if you faithfully give $300 as an offering, because that's what you can give, And you find out that your brother or your sister has a need that equals whatever you give to the church. Your response should not be, I have to give my offering." You say, no, I have it. And no, I'm not saying you need to give 300 to this person and then give something to the church. What I'm saying is that's the point of your offering. Your offering is not for me, it's not for nobody that sings, nobody that plays, nobody that does anything. Your offering is for the building of the body of Christ. If you give it to the church, it's going to them anyway. If you as a Christian have the means to meet the need of a brother or sister, you have an obligation according to the word of God to meet that need. And so, no, it is not a noble thing if you just blindly give it to the church and let your brother or your sister go in need and you had it. It's wrong. So y'all, contrary to what you've been told, no, you don't give your offering so that you will be blessed, but you give your offering so that those around you will be blessed. And if your service only serves you, then that's not Christ-like. Make it more clearly, James says this in James 2 and 15. He said, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have good works, is dead. He goes to say that Christians should make their best effort to live in peace. As much as it depends on us, not being vengeful, not being vindictive, And if I can be honest, y'all know me. Shonda told me to create a fake Facebook page because of how vindictive I am. But as y'all know, I like to get those back. And so this in particular is a struggle for me because it means that I am not, again, in a passive position, but I am actively seeking to make peace with people that I may not be at peace with. Whew. Y'all don't know how hard that is. I was arguing with somebody on Facebook just last week, and then I Googled his number and sent it to them, Then I had to delete everything. It is a struggle, okay? That's what I'm trying to get y'all to understand. It's hard. Because folks just be foking, and I be wanting to get them together, but what it is saying is, as a Christian, I can't go with my first natural response. Because I know my first natural response. I must do Even what feels unnatural to me in the hopes that the more I do it and the more I practice it, that which felt natural will eventually feel unnatural. And that which used to feel unnatural being loving and kind and not vindictive and not vengeful, eventually, by the grace of God, will one day be natural for me. Christians can't say they don't like me and I'm okay with it. No. What have we done to make peace with them? Now, at first glance, you may say, well, that ain't Christ-like. But I want you to think about this. As I close, what did Christ do for us to be at peace with him? We were his enemies. And what did he do in order for us to be reconciled with him? He died. Jesus, while we were his enemies, died on a cross so that we would be reconciled in right relationship with him. Y'all, similarly, in order for us to make our best attempt at being at peace, with those around us, whether that's people in the church, people in your family, friends, enemies, people that are on your job, you must choose to do exactly what Jesus did. When my natural mind wants to be okay with them being an enemy or wants to be vindictive, then it requires me dying to myself. Which is why Paul says, reckon, that's that's, that's King James right there, reckon yourselves to be dead, mortifying the flesh, killing the flesh, crucifying yourself so that you can look more like Christ. And so he closes with this, and this is the same place I'll close. He says, as Christians... We don't do to others what they do to us. The world may live by that principle, but we do better. As a Christian, it doesn't matter how they did me. I have to go the step above. And I can only do that by setting Jesus as the standard, not others. The standard is not how does so-and-so treat me. How has Jesus treated me? In my sin, in in my wrong, in my anger, in my flesh. How has Jesus treated me when I wasn't just appearing to be an enemy, but was an enemy? How did Jesus love me? And he says this, and this is where I'll close. He says, we don't overcome evil by being evil in return, but rather we overcome evil By being radically better than evil. By doing good in the midst and in the face of evil. So you hear all that. You go down this spiritual checklist. Maybe you read this on your own time and think to yourself, where do I fall in all of these things? He's wrapping that up to to seal this point with them. It's like, look, keep your lives in check. Because it's so easy for ourselves and our lives to get out of place and disjoining like we talked about before. And sometimes we don't even know that we're not where we used to be. Where are you in your walk? So you think you're a Christian. What does the Bible say? Maybe you're not as mature as you thought you were. Maybe you're not as far along as you should be. Well, the challenge is you will find all that you need in the Word, in the people that God has placed around you, and in fellowship and in a discipleship relationship with other mature believers. And growing together, making a practice of what you actually love, and maybe coming to grips that what I love is not what I think I love. And what I desire, maybe is not what I think I desire. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you for a check. God, a check in our spirits, a check in the word. God, we want to be content with you, but we don't want to be complacent. And sometimes it feels like a real thin line, God. But contentment comes with joy, it comes with peace, it comes with excitement, it comes with passion. God, complacency comes with boredom, it comes with obligation, it comes with resentment. And we don't want to be complacent in our relationships with one another. We don't want to be complacent in our walk with you. God, it is top to bottom, where we are with you affects everything else we do. So, God, before we try to correct our family situation or our work situation or our relationships or our marriages or our kids, God, let us make sure that we are actually rooted in you and that the relationship we have with you is good first. God, if we can make sure if we can check ourselves that we are where we need to be with you, we know that all these other things that you said, they will be added.